The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we're finishing up Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart. This wonderful collection of teachings from this Thai meditation master of the last century, quite well known in Thailand by the time of his death in the early 90s, and someone who trained a lot of the Western teachers, um, some of the are well-known people like Jack Hornfield and Ajahn Sumedho went over to Thailand in the 60s and ended up, had the great fortune to join Ajahn Chah and ordain and practice as monks. Ajahn Sumedho, of course, still practicing as a monk, now in his, must be getting close to 80 himself. And uh, it's interesting how somebody who grew up in northeast Thailand a long time ago could have an influence here in Minneapolis at this particular corner on this particular night. But this is the thing about this wisdom. It's really contagious. When there's a mind that comes to understand things deeply, it's like magnetic. We're really interested in what they have to say. In the same way that if we're hearing just the same old, same old from someone, we're not that interested in hearing what they have to say. It's like, oh yeah, been there, done that. I know, I get what you're talking about. I've heard that before. You know, whatever that might be for you. It's like you turn on the radio and you're hearing somebody talk about the news. You know how it is. It's like, oh yeah, I know exactly what they're going to say. And so, this particular teaching, it's, uh, this is chapter 36, and it's called Transcendence. And we can easily misunderstand this word transcendence. Often, it gets equated with a life-denying, like, oh, the world's just too messy, I'd really like to transcend it. But when people take that word transcendence, it's not so much about getting out of this messy world, going to some pure abode, where everything's soft and clean and orderly. It's like we imagine heaven is this way, where it's perfect and we're safe. And we can really, for the first time, we can relax. But the, but the kind of transcendence we're talking about, or Ajahn Chah is talking about, is we're transcending the way, the habit of our mind to take this experience, how we understand it, as some kind of truth, or take our opinions, the opinions my mind has about the way it is, as some kind of truth. So the transcendence is we're transcending, the mind is learning to transcend any fixed view about how it is. We get a lot of safety. We derive a lot of safety from what is really just a fixed idea. And it's interesting how much fear, and this fear really drives our lives in so many different ways, how much fear we have about 
things being undefined, unfixed, open, not clear, not clearly defined or fixed. It's like so much of our existential safety is defining or fixing ourselves in space. I am, this is what's happening, this is good, this is bad. So, in this chapter, Arjun Chah is talking about this sense of transcending these fixed views. Part of what that has to do with is all these different ways we have a sense of ownership. Like once something's fixed, then there can be a sense of ownership. Even ownership of an idea, this is my idea of who I am. Or this is my possession. These are my clothes. This is, these are my notes, my book. This is my spiritual home. I'm a Buddhist. So whatever we have a fixed idea about, then what gets born with that is a sense of ownership. And as soon as there's a sense of ownership of an idea or some possession or a body, then there's a sense of protection, like being vulnerable to threats, that what I own is vulnerable to somebody taking it away, ruining it. So not only do we justify being defensive, but we can justify going on the offense, like, well, I better do something before somebody else does something to protect my idea, to protect myself, to protect my possessions, to protect my sense of things. It's so disconcerting. I've been around my family a lot this last week, my extended family, my brothers and sisters and their families. And, you know, when we're in that environment, especially around our siblings, no matter how much we've wanted to become to be a certain person, we tend to be the person we were conditioned to be around our families. And that can be disconcerting because it doesn't fit our idea of who we want to be, how we want to be, how we want to be seen. But we get pigeonholed, partly because of the way we tend to act in those situations and partly because of the way those people have their way of seeing us, which is conditioned too. And how disturbing it is, right, because we have, well, I'm this way, but we keep falling into being seen, acting in another way. We're threatened. So much of the suffering we experience is we're threatened, not by some outside monster, but we're threatened by the way it actually is. You know, we're just threatened by life being the way it is. It isn't that life is either good or bad, it's just not the way we want it to be. And we feel threatened by that. But the threat, the suffering arises not because life is the way that it is, but because we have this idea it shouldn't be this way. And this is what can be transcended. 
this way of relating or this way of being in life, where we have fixed ideas of the way it should be or shouldn't be, In this chapter, Ajahn Chah talks about sankaras. Sankaras sometimes get translated, the word gets translated as intention or mental formations. And it really points to the spectrum of mental activity from the dispositions we have because the mind is conditioned. It has tendencies or dispositions. Those dispositions, when they get triggered, arise in the mind as an intention and then into action. That intention gets expressed. We say something or don't say something, do something or don't do something. That's the expression that began as a disposition, matured as an intention in the mind, an actual force in the mind. In a moment, right, in any moment of our life, there are arising intentions like a force to do something, to say something. That doesn't mean we're going to say something or do something, but there's a like an actual thing we can notice and about to do something. And then when we do it, then in a sense that disposition, intention comes to fruition as an act of speech, thought, or action in the world, some deed that we do. So we could say that... Uh, Part of this transcendence is transcending the way we relate to these, to sankara. Like it's, the Buddha might say something like, it's the not understanding these mental constructions, this mental force. It's really a force. And remember, that force, what does it come from? It comes from the conditioning of the mind, like, the dispositions of this mind, we didn't put those dispositions there. They're just there. And then when certain conditions arise, it, in a sense it brings those dispositions to the surface as intention, as a force in the mind. And then if there's not a lot of mindfulness, a lot of understanding, then whatever that force is, it's just going to get acted out. In a way, that's the only place for wisdom to operate, to be aware of sankaras, of these, this movement from the conditioning, the dispositions of the mind, into intention, motivation, into action, saying something, thinking something, or doing something. So practice, mindfulness practice, or just generally this whole path of awakening, as the Buddha calls it, this path of waking up, it's mostly focused on waking up to this movement of the mind, from disposition to intention to action. And it's not about controlling that, which is what we would normally think. Oh yeah, we pay attention, we wake up to it in order to control it, because it's a wild beast and it's going to get us in trouble if we don't really get a handle on intention. It's beyond that. It's not just about control. Ultimately, it's not about control at all. It's about transforming the understanding. What is the mind taking sankara to be, these mental formations, this movement of mind to be? Because 
that's not going to go away. The Buddha had intentions. You know, a fully awake person, they have intentions. The most deluded, ignorant person in the world, they also have intentions. Being alive, being a conditioned being, means the mind is going to have dispositions, motivations, intentions, into action. The question is, how does the mind understand, how does the mind relate to sankaras? We can transcend the usual way of relating, which is when there is this movement, we take it as self, me or mine. I'm thinking this. This is how I feel. This is the way I understand. This is true. But it's possible through paying attention to see that movement not in terms of self, not in terms of me or mine, but just a natural arising. That's just what the mind does. This conditioned mind is conditioned. So, as this conditioned mind has experiences, it's going to, in a sense, trigger the dispositions, the tendencies. They'll blossom as feelings, intentions, motivations. Here, right now, we're feeling in the mind and heart, seeing in the mind and heart. And then, some of those will go into action. So, instead of seeing that activity as self, we see it as just, that's just the nature of the mind the impersonal nature of the mind. And our job isn't to take it personally. Our job is to simply understand that some of that stuff that's arising is going to lead to hell, to difficult conditions for ourselves. And some of that which is arising is going to lead to skillful action, you know, living, acting, speaking in a way that harmonizes, that takes care of what needs taken care of. And so that's what we're doing as a practitioner. Instead of that habit to take it all personally, and then we'll personally let the strongest intention, we'll let it express itself as action in terms of speech and thought and deeds in the world. Instead, we're aware that it's all impersonal. And just because it's impersonal doesn't mean that some of those intentions or less or more wholesome than the others. So it's all impersonal, but still, some intentions cause problems if allowed to be expressed as thought and words and actions. And some intentions actually do a lot of good for ourselves and others, create conditions for pleasant conditions to arise, pleasant circumstances to arise. So then... It is the nature of the mind to have intentions, and it can also be the nature of the mind to understand these intentions, to recognize them for what they are, and to begin to discern naturally what intentions are wholesome and what intentions are unwholesome. So we're transcending the addiction, the identification with intentions, with the activity of the mind. This is the big transformation, or transcendence. Mostly the habit is, the activity of the mind is me. This is, an, this is a ten, tendency, a habit, 
that we don't consider an alternative to. We just assume that the activity of mind is self. But through developing mindfulness, initially, you know, we practice being mindful of the sensations of the body sitting or mindful of the breath coming and going or mindful of hearing. So we're using relatively easy objects to be learn how to be mindful so that eventually we could start being mindful of the activity of the mind itself. Because the activity of the mind is much more seductive. It's, it's so easy to take it personally. It's relatively easy to be aware of the body without taking it personally. It's still our habit to take the sensations of the body personally. But it's relatively easy. It's relatively easy to go sit on a bench and hear the sound of the birds and just to let the sound of the birds be that play of nature, not to take it personally. It's like, it may be beautiful, but it's not personal. The beauty of the bird sounds, there's nothing personal about it. Or you watch the clouds floating by, and they may be beautiful, but, po- but probably it's beautiful because it's not personal. It's has nothing to do with me, right? Same with the woods. That's why we like being out in nature, The reason we think it's so beautiful is because it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's just a natural expression of causes and conditions. When we walk down a dirty alley, we don't think it, normally we don't think it's beautiful because we project that all of this is made up by humans. You know, it's like, all seems personal. Not that it's personal to me, but it's personal to somebody. We have a personal relationship to it. So civilization, generally, we don't think of as being beautiful as much as we think the Grand Canyon or the ocean surf or the breeze going through the leaves of the tree or the, you know, field of grass sort of swaying this way and that way. These things naturally are seen as beautiful. So... We start with, you know, in our sitting practice, for example, we start with just feeling the sensations of the body or feeling the breath moving or hearing sounds. And we begin to just allow that movement of sensation or that movement of sound to be seen as an act, the activity of nature, not self. There's nothing personal about hearing. You don't need to personally be involved in hearing. You can't Stop yourself from hearing. As long as you're not distracted, hearing just happens. Right? Same with seeing. You know, when you're just gazing, receiving the visual information, there's nothing personal about it. We can do the same thing with the mental activity. You see, you hear something, you think something, it triggers the dispositions, the conditioned tendencies of the mind that all arises in the space of the mind, so to speak, as mental activity, the different play of intentions, tendencies, motivations. The mind is constructing meaning right there and then. But all of that is not so different than sitting by a watering hole and watching the different animals and the wind and activity. Fine. It's just not as, it's not as easy for the mind to see that as a play of nature because 
the mind, part of the conditioning of the mind is to take mental activity very personally. But we can transcend that tendency. That's really the point of this chapter, is to transform or transcend the tendency to take mental formations, mental activity personally. Let me read a little from this chapter. So I think we just have one or maybe two more chapters left. Some of you know that while the Buddha, when the Buddha left his princely life to get interested, when he got interested in spiritual practice, he saw that although he had a really, you know, had a really good life, he was rich, beautiful family, great, you know, just competence in the world, and he left that because he saw that as nice as it was, there was nothing there that would provide lasting happiness. That everything that, that was nice was also fragile and uncertain and could change. So he saw it, he went off and practiced. And one of the big ways of practicing back then were, were different aesthetic practices, like being caught up in the world, being a sensitive beast in this world, seeking happiness through good food, nice sense experiences, that, that's not the way. So the idea was to reject that must be the way. So that's really the birth of asceticism. It's like, well, if indulging in beautiful sense experiences doesn't lead to anything lasting, I'm going to reject that. I'm going to reject pleasant sense experiences. So I'll fast. I won't wear nice clothes. I won't live in nice homes. I'll live out in the woods or in the forests. I won't eat much at all. I'll break this tendency in my mind to want nice sense experiences. So people, still to this day, of course, we reject sense pleasures, and we think that rejecting in rejecting sense pleasures will get something. Well, the Buddha tried that for a while, and the way he described it, he not, not, not only tried that, but he got... You know, he did asceticism as much as any human being has done asceticism. He says, whatever anybody else has done in terms of ascetic practices, I've done. And I find, and I found it doesn't lead anywhere. So this is like the real turning point. He realized that thinking that sense experiences is going to lead to some lasting happiness, it ain't so. And he describes, like, I had it as good as anybody can have it. I had a different palace for every season of the year. You know, when it was hot, I had the palace high up in the hills. When it was cold, I had the palace where it was warmer. You know, goes on and on talking about how nice it was. And then he rejected. He says, no matter what ascetic practice anybody's done, I've done that. And I found indulging in sense pleasures doesn't lead to lasting happiness. Rejecting sense pleasures doesn't lead to lasting Happiness, it leads to sickness and the breakdown of the body. And, and even the breakdown of the mind, like the mind loses its clarity because of not taking care of the body. So he rejected both extremes and he took care of the body without indulging in sense experiences. He lived in a way that supported good health of the body and mind. 
and then he, this is the transcendence part, he began to understand that the path towards freedom didn't lie, or real happiness, you could say, doesn't lie in indulging in sense experiences, trying to get the ultimate sense experience that will make you happy forever, or rejecting the world of sense experience. It lies in transforming or transcending wrong view. And then he distilled this understanding through his own insight, his own reflection. He distilled this sense of transcendence to the core problem, which is the mind's misunderstanding of mental activity, specifically intention, or sankara. It's the not understanding of sankara that is the root of suffering. And it's the understanding of this mental activity where the mind constructs personal meaning. It's the understanding of that. That's the very definition of wisdom. Wisdom, by definition, is the mind understanding what mental formation, what this mental activity is and what it isn't. And basically, you know, the way the Buddha articulated that is it isn't personal. It's just the activity of nature. When the mind constructs meaning, there's nothing good or bad about it. It's just like there's nothing good or bad when leaves fall off of trees. It's just what happens. This mind constructs meaning. You know, and that meaning that it constructs comes out of the way it's conditioned. And all of that activity is a natural movement in the same way that everything else is a natural movement of causes and conditions. And this can be understand, understood rightly through the abandoning of wrong view. And how do we abandon wrong view? We see it as it is. He gives the example in this chapter of you know, how we build the structure. He gives the example at the monastery where they built a sala, meditation hall. And, uh, you know, for the people to practice in, the monks, the nuns, the lay people to practice in. And then all of a sudden, the rats and the geckos, lizards, spiders, they all move in, right? Because that's what bees do. They look for appropriate places to live. And we think, well, wait a minute. We built this for human beings. You're not supposed to be here. You know, we shoo them out. Being good Buddhists, you don't kill the creatures, you just, you know, use your wits to get them out of the place. But it's just interesting, this idea that this is my place. So this sense of ownership. Now, we can still take care of our needs, but we can begin to loosen, lighten up about this sense of ownership. It's not about what we do with the spiders in our home or our apartment. But what's the attitude? You know, you might remove the spider from your place, but is our mind fixed that this is my place? No, it's a dance. You know, it's like, what's that line, you know? Possession is 90% of the law or something. Yeah, it's like, like, who's there? (laughs) You know, so... Whose place is it really? And there's this dance. And so, like, how do we participate in this dance? 
in, in a conventional way, you know, we say, yeah, this is my land, this is our meditation center, this is my car, these are my clothes. But we don't have to be confused by these conventional ways of talking or speaking. We can understand that, you know, and then all of a sudden somebody takes something of ours or ruins something of ours. And then the attitude can be, well, that's how it is sometimes. Sometimes people do break car windows and take what's inside. Sometimes things burn down. Sometimes, you know, it's like this and sometimes it's like that. So we don't have to have a fixed idea of possession or ownership. We can understand that that's just an idea. It's like, in what way are these clothes mine? I mean, what is it about this jacket that makes it mine? There is nothing inherent in the jacket that's mine. It's just a jacket that I'm wearing. And then if I think, well, I bought that jacket, but that's a thought in my mind now. It has nothing to do with this jacket. So all of these ideas of ownership, of possession, we can begin to loosen, we can transcend the fixedness of that idea. There's a really funny story that... Uh, <laughs> who was it? I forget. One of the teachers told... And I can't remember now if it happened to her or happened to one of her students that then told her... Uh, but anyway, so uh, there's a woman, um, busy professional at the airport, and uh, she has to wait for a flight. She picked up, you know, a bottle of water and some cookies at the convenience store there at the airport. And she's sitting down waiting for a flight to board, and uh, you know, reading her book or magazine. And um, she reaches over, you know, a little table between the chairs, and takes a cookie and starts eating it and reading. And then she notices out of the corner of her eye that guy sitting on the other side of the table reaches and takes a cookie out of her bag. And, you know, you can imagine that. That would be a little disturbing because, you know, they're my cookies. And, uh, and, uh, but, you know, it's just like that's an awkward social situation. So she ignores it and, you know, that doesn't stop eating. You know, she's going to get her share of her cookies. And this goes on, and he takes some, and and I think what happens at the end is this very weird thing where he picks up the bag and offers her the last couple cookies in the bag. <laughs> she thought it was so incredibly arrogant on this guy. So anyway, they by then it's time to board, and they, they board, and she's on her seat in the in the plane, and she's kind of getting settled and looking through a person, and there are her cookies unopened in her bag. They weren't her cookies. <laughs> they were the other guy's cookies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so just that that sense, like how many we, and maybe not so dramatic, but we probably all had this experience where we were sure something was ours, but it turns out it wasn't ours at all. Like we had a pen, you know. We see somebody with a pen. Wait a minute, is that my pen? You know. And we have to check, you know, 
are they with my pen? Or it's like uh, when my wife was here tonight, you know, she'll be drying herself, coming out of the bath or shower, and I go, is that my towel? <laughs> you know, I'll check. It's like, is she using my towel? How many funny ways we, our possessiveness, our sense of being fixed with an idea of ownership, act, and how much suffering. I mean, you can just imagine the kind of self-righteous, well, I'm going to just let him eat, but he's going to burn in hell. You know, <laughs> what the heck is he doing? You know, that, and if the person like was of a di- different generation, we probably think, oh, the young people these days, or whatever. Or if they're an older person, like, they're probably senile. I mean, how many times have we wrongly judged somebody only to find later that we just have misunderstood the situation. But our mind, for a while, was really fixed, really possessing that idea, owning that idea as being right. Some truth, with a capital T, that we own. I have the truth here. I know what's going on. So this transcendence is really a movement towards humility. Like, that this this idea that we, the mind can grasp what's true is a fiction. Or the one thing we can take refuge in is the not knowing. You know, in the aliveness and the uncertainty and unreliability and the open state of the mind. So we can take refuge in the knowing. That we can take refuge in. But not in the conclusion that the thinking mind, the sankara process, creates. That is not worthy of taking refuge in, because sometimes those intentions are very wise, and sometimes they're very diluted. It just depends on the conditioning that that comes out of. Right? How many times today, let alone in our life, how many times today have different impulses arisen, intentions in our mind that were really immature? Fortunately, hopefully, today, you know, we saw that and we didn't act them out. But we maybe were inclined to act them out. I mean, I may have said a lot of stupid things in the last few days with my family, but there are a lot of stupid things I didn't say. (laughs) And I'm really grateful that there was enough awareness there to see that intention and to, in a sense, as it arose in the mind, to taste it. Boy, no, don't do that. (laughs) Don't say that. Don't act that out. It won't help. It won't do anybody any good. And there will be regret. That will be the only thing remaining is a yucky, the yucky taste of regret, the pain of remorse. Don't say that. Don't do that. So we can be really grateful for this place where the mind can just be aware of all that movement and not, you know, kind of reflexively act it out. I want to read just a paragraph before opening it up. Hajacha says, The real foundation of the teaching is in order to see Atta, the self, as being empty, with no fixed identity, void of intrinsic being. Right? Because self is just an idea. This is part of this insight that Hajacha is talking about. And it's, this is the misunderstanding. The sense of self is just an intention that tends to repeat all the time. 
I'm here. I'm listening to Mark talk. I don't like what he's saying. I like what he's saying. All of these intentions are being taken as personal. So they're, that reinforces a sense of self. But self is actually just that activity of mind, which is impersonal. It can be understood that way. It can be seen that way. But people come to the study of Dhamma to increase their self-view, so they don't want to experience suffering or difficulty. They want everything to be cozy. They may want to transcend suffering, but if there is still a self, how can they ever do so? Because as soon as there is a sense of self, of ownership, attachment to an idea, whatever that idea is, then there's danger. There's something to struggle against, to hold on to. Their suffering. He goes on, he says, suppose we came to possess a very expensive object. The minute the thing comes into our possession, our mind changes. Now, where can I keep it? If I leave it there, somebody might steal it. We worry ourselves into a state trying to find a place to keep it. And when did the mind change? It changed the minute we obtained the object. Or we could say, it changed the minute the mind had the sense of possession that this is mine. If we don't think it's mine, then if it comes or goes, it doesn't cause the mind to waver. But when we have a strong sense that it's mine, this is my possession, then it really matters what happens to it. Just a tiny example. Some of you know my dad died last week. So part of what my family and I were doing is taking care of his home. And... Uh, we just took turns taking things, you know, and I took one of my dad's suitcases. And then uh, a little later at the end, my sister from Iceland, she lives in Iceland with her Icelandic husband, uh, said, uh, hey, I need a suitcase <laughs> to get all my stuff to Iceland. Can I use your suitcase? I'll bring it back. You know, you know totally, you know, I, on the surface I was fine. But because <coughs> I practiced mindfulness, I noticed, I, I'm honest with myself, and I noticed that sort of stinginess, that <coughs> tightness. Like, I've always wanted one of those rollable carry-on suitcases, you know, where you don't have to, I have this backpack that I use for my carry-on baggage, and as I'm getting older, you know, it's like, it's not easy to walk around with a heavy backpack on. I say, oh, it'd be nice. I see why everybody has a rolling suitcase these days. And so I just noticed that, like, you know, as I was saying, yes, there was a sense, but it's my suitcase. <laughs> I told a funny story that Craig Vollmer told me about. It's just a, a very funny talk. It's not that it's anything we haven't heard before from uh, the 12-step tradition. At one of those 12-step conventions, there's a man with a funny name called Sandy Beach. And he's telling this story. He's a, evidently a well-known speaker in the 12-step tradition. Um, like AA, and he's uh, telling a story about being in the middle of a, an ocean holding on to a big heavy stone. And uh, not in the middle, but like out far enough that people can't go out and save you. But the people on shore are yelling, you know, all oh, his wise friends are yelling, let go of the stone, you know. And he's saying, but it's my stone. You know, and he's drowning, and they keep saying, let go of the stone. No, it's my stone. The thing is, that's the absurdity of this. It just feels so natural to be identified 
with mental formations, with mental activity. And it doesn't matter if there's a completely wise human being next to us saying, don't identify with mental activity. And we say, but it's my thought, it's my view, it's my understanding. It's not so easy to let it go. What helps is just to keep watching. To get this instruction that we can be mindful of this whole process of being, having a conditioned mind, having intentions, having these mental formations, having them being acted out as thought, as words, as actions in the world, and seeing the consequences. Just keep observing that whole cycle over and over again in a relaxed and non-judgmental way. Just keep seeing it, and eventually it will dawn on the mind. It's not personal. The first moment you let go, that there is something that appears initially to be personal, but the mind just lets it be what it is, it's like an amazing insight. You let go of the heavy stone, and it's not a problem. You just tread water. You're not sinking. To see that the rage in the mind, the lust in the mind, the confusion in the mind, whatever it is in the mind, that it's not personal, it's a real breakthrough moment. Because then the next time it's going to be a little bit easier not to take the mental activity personally. And then the next time a little bit easier. And then little by little, there's this gradual, powerful transformation where mental activity is seen as nature and not self. Let me just finish this paragraph. This is suffering. And when did it arise? It arose as soon as we knew that we had obtained something. Before we had that object, there was no suffering. It hadn't yet arisen, because there wasn't yet an object for it to cling to. Selfing is the same. If we think in terms of, quote, myself, unquote, then everything around us becomes mine. Confusion follows. The cause of it all is that there is a self. We don't peel off the apparent in order to see the transcendent. You see, the self is only an appearance. Right? It's a thought. The self is only an appearance. You have to peel away the appearance in order to see the heart of the matter, which is transcendence. Overturn the apparent to find the transcendence. And this is the thing. The sense of self on the surface seems very real. We have to train the eyes, so to speak, to see through that surface. It's me, it's mine. To the movement of mental formations, the movement of mental activity, to really see it as a natural, impersonal process. And that's the transcendence. And I'm sure that some of you in the room have had this experience many, many times. You might want to share that. You might want to share what's in the way, what supports it. And of course, any questions you have about the talk tonight. So we have ten minutes. What comes to mind? Yeah, please say your name again. Paige. I, I really appreciate the teaching on not taking things personally. That's, there's so much there. But is there, especially in the context of relationships, is there ever a time where it's appropriate to take something personally? Is it ever appropriate to take something personally? Well, can you give us an example of when it might, when you feel like it might be useful to take something personally? In the context of, you know, an intimate relationship. Or a, a relationship where um, 
with with your mother, or I'm I'm thinking about love, and I'm just thinking about those close relationships where there is something that seems personal. Now, here's the point that I think you're making, which is a really important point. But I wouldn't I wouldn't couch it in the in terms of uh, that it's okay to take things personally. But I think what you're pointing to is that you don't want to. There's there's the equal and opposite. There's the taking things personally, but there's another way to take things personally. For me to personally think that everything is impersonal is equally off, because it's a it's wisdom, but I mean it's ignorance masquerading as wisdom. It's attachment masquerading as wisdom that I'm averse. This is like a, this is the same as what I was talking about in terms of asceticism. Because I could be interacting with my mother or <clears throat> with my partner, and I could be thinking, oh, it's not personal. Like the relationship isn't personal. The <clears throat> the love I feel or the intimacy I feel that's not personal. But I could be using that sense to protect myself, right? Like, I'm not going to take it personal so that I'll be safe. What she does won't hurt me because I don't care because it's not personal. But you see, that's just a self-strategy. The self is trying to protect itself. So the self protects itself by attaching and it protects itself by pushing away. And that's what the Buddhist life you know, as a symbol, as a myth, the Buddha's life is that story. In his early life, he tried to protect himself by grasping beautiful sense experience. He was a prince, he had a beautiful family, he was wealthy, he had a lot of power, a lot of physical skill, you know, he was a good bowsman and, you know, all those martial arts he was good at. And that didn't work. So then he got attached to rejecting the world. You know, I don't need anything. I give it all up. I'm not. But that was also self-activity. That was just another way of reinforcing the sense of self. I'm the one who doesn't care. So Go ahead. you're saying there's sort of a middle way to be yeah. personal? Yeah. So it's not about how we are with another human being. That's not how we evaluate the practice. The way we evaluate the practice is, are we practicing in a way that allows for intimacy and freedom? So freedom is only relevant in terms of intimacy. Like, what does freedom mean if we're not engaged? We want to be free with engagement. That's the only freedom that anybody would be interested in. It's like, otherwise the freedom would be like, well, I'll just end this life and then I'll be free. And from a Buddhist cosmological point of view, that's not true. You just get reborn again. The thing repeats itself like in that movie Groundhog's Day. You just get another life. So the only context for freedom is with engagement, with intimacy. To be free, to be alive, to be happy, has to be in the context of being intimate with conditions, with the way it is. That's what. That's how we... Realize freedom. Asceticism is the mistaken idea that I can be free by rejecting intimacy. Rejecting having to have sense experiences. Like a contact with my mom, for example. A contact with my partner or with a friend or with the world. The messy 
world of Democrats and Republicans. God, if I could only get away from that, then, you know, we imagine these utopias, which just become another kind of self-drama and, and place for suffering. You know, the whole, I remember in high school, I didn't really understand it, but I read, uh, is it The Fountainhead, or what's the other book that Ayn Rand wrote? Atlas Shrugged. I read those two books, and I, I don't think I really understood them, but I got the basic idea. You know, it's really about like, you know, there's just so much ignorance out there. Let's let's get the elite together, you know. And I'm not sure which of you are the elite, but, you know, I'll find you, and we'll, we'll go somewhere where we won't have to, you know, deal with all these leeches that want to take advantage of our competence, you know. And uh, they can just fend for themselves. But we'll have this perfect society. And there's all, you know, there's so many ways that that has created suffering in the world, that idea. So the practice really is about um, using this life and the, you know, like the embodiment of this life, having a body, being a social beast with relationships, you know, having to feed, having sexual urges, you know, all of this is the way that it is. So how to be free with that? That's really the question, not how to get rid of it. Or to think that somehow just indulging in it is going to lead to some lasting happiness. Thanks, Paige. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah. Say your name? Brian. Brian. I struggle a lot with this quest for finding purpose in this utopia or Shangri-La, whatever it is, that we're conditioned to our whole lives search for what my purpose is for being here. And I find it really challenging to just be. Um, I'm wondering if there's some relief from, of course, some guidance you might provide for there is no, I mean, if there is no purpose, if I, if I wasn't meant to be something, or mm-hmm. I just haven't found it yet, how to be alright with that. Yeah, so there's, yeah, no, no, I, I think people understand that because it's, it's a common experience for all of us. I mean, universal experience, I should say. And, you know, it might just come down to just a, a basic uneasiness of the heart. So, and to put it in a positive light, it's some intuition that this uneasiness that we experience as a human being can be released, right? And then what the Buddha might say is that we mistakenly think that the way to achieve that release is through some attainment, getting something, like getting some understanding or getting some possession or whatever. But if I, if only blank, then this uneasiness would go away. If only I had the right job, the right partner, the right understanding, then this uneasiness would go away. So this is just a description of our human predicament. And then what the Buddha might say is that you don't want to give up on that, you just want to refine what that is, what that uneasiness is. So instead of assuming that the release to that uneasiness will come from this particular way you've been conditioned to think it comes, step back and take a good look at the uneasiness. Like, honey, I do want to address this uneasiness, but I realize I don't really know who you are or what you are. So let me get to know the uneasiness before I reflexively try to address it. It's like solving a problem before we know what the problem is. 
So what is the problem here? You could literally ask that question. So you notice that drive that you have, Ryan. And then before just doing something about it, like going to the next spiritual center on your list, maybe they have the answer, you know, we go, well, let me just check out what that feeling is. What is that uneasy feeling? The feeling that something is missing in this life. Or how do I know that I'm not already perfectly happy? Like what is it about this experience that tells me that the heart, the mind, the body is not already okay? How do I know it's not okay? And get really interested in it with an open-minded approach. Like, what is what is the problem here? Is there a problem here? I love this in meetings when people, you know, just help clarify the situation. They say, okay, let's just stop for a moment. What actually is the problem we're trying to address here? And then how do we know it's a problem? What is the experiences we're having that have taught us that this is a problem that needs to be addressed? So it really is grounding for us to do that for ourselves. Thanks for bringing that up. What else comes to mind? Just a minute left, if there's any last thought for for the group that you'd like to share. Maybe we'll just leave it here, just take a breath together. Appreciate these ancient and practical teachings. We can appreciate all the people, all the different walks of life through all the centuries that cultivated this practice, this path of awakening. They had busy lives and limitations just as we do. They realized some wisdom and out of their compassion they shared what they've come to learn. And then now we're the beneficiaries of their practice, all this practice. So now it's our turn do the best we can in our busy lives to use our life as a teacher. Let life teach us what it can teach us. To get interested in this uneasiness in the heart. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.